You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about the Fierce 15 honorees. But first up, let's talk about how to prevent the disruption of cancer care in times of crisis. When the COVID-19 pandemic broke out and there was a massive influx of patients, hospitals were stretched thin. So the government encouraged hospitals to delay non-essential elective surgeries. That meant that at the peak of the pandemic, thousands of cancer surgeries were delayed and many screening facilities closed temporarily. About 9.4 million cancer tests simply didn't happen. These delays in care could mean decreased overall survival in breast, lung, and colon cancers, even for early stages of the disease. One study found that even four weeks of delayed chemotherapy increased the risk of death by 15%. As the country emerges from the worst of the pandemic, one thing is clear. These sacrifices should not have to happen again. Julie Grelo is the chief medical officer of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. She sat down with Anastasia Gledkovskia to talk about how the healthcare system can support communities in times of crisis. Hi, Julie. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you about this underreported topic. I don't think we see too much of this in the news, but it's, of course, really important, um, which is maintaining cancer care delivery in times of crisis, all different types of crisis. Um, So, you know, to dive in, I think it would be helpful to just cover some basics. When we're thinking about crises or natural disasters, I think there's lots of things that we can imagine, right? There's climate change, um, for example, Hurricane Ian. There's something like, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic or even the Russian war on Ukraine. I wanted to ask, is there something that all these different types of crises have in common when it comes to healthcare, more specifically cancer care? Like what happens to cancer care delivery during these times? Well, it's interesting to try to find some common threads because, of course, all of the different crises that you mentioned—the natural disasters, the the pandemics, and the you know the war—they um, have different implications and different issues. Our main concern when we look at one of these types of crises is what is it doing to cancer care right now? And sometimes it's very short term, very dramatic and then corrects quickly. And other times it goes on, like with the COVID-19 pandemic, for years and years. Um, So the first thing we would ask when we see something like this happening is, what is happening to cancer care delivery? We focus on that as opposed to prevention and screening. What is happening to cancer care delivery right now? And what can we do to help? Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. And just to be clear, defining cancer care delivery, does that include uh, medications, chemotherapy, radiation, and surgeries? Is there anything else that I'm missing? Uh, all of those, right. Surgery, radiation, and and drug therapy, uh, 
would be areas that we would look at. Um, sometimes they can be postponed. Uh, sometimes there are alternatives. For example, with the COVID-19 pandemic, for early stage breast cancer, um, in many situations, uh, we were able to, for example, start endocrine therapy to keep the cancer under check so that the surgery could be postponed a couple of months if we needed to use ORs as backup ICU beds. So, so we look at strategies related to any of those forms of treatment, what actually can be delayed or done in an alternative way um, and what just can't be. Mm-hmm. And during COVID, like it's my understanding that there was guidance put out on triaging surgical care and what uh, surgeries need to be prioritized. But ultimately, isn't it true that hospitals and healthcare facilities are going to act more on their resources and their immediate capacity rather than guidance? Can you talk about how effective it was to have that dialogue in theory versus how that triage actually played out in practice during COVID? Well, as as with all of our clinical practice guidelines, they're mainly their recommendations uh, that, as you point out, need to be taken into account uh, at the individual uh, cancer center, facility, hospital, clinic level. I guess I'm curious to what extent you think that is normal or perhaps a problem if you know, hospitals choose not to follow this triage guidance. Um, of course, there were reports by Kaiser Health News and some other newsrooms that, um, you know, even urgent surgeries were not really being prioritized at some facilities. You know, is there a way to work around that and make sure that hospitals are actually sticking to some of these guidelines? Well, I think that it is important that uh, taking the guidelines into account, but also taking into what is the burden right now at your facility. If you were in a state or a city uh, where COVID had not yet hit or or was being well managed and you had plenty of OR space, then I would say it was fine to go ahead with more routine surgeries. If you were in a city in a hospital that was just overwhelmed with COVID patients and you just couldn't do the surgery, then I think you can work outside the guidelines. In that situation, maybe you'd find alternative places to have the surgery. If it was really critical to have the surgery and the hospital just could not open up the OR space for that. So I think it needs to be put in the perspective of the local context. Um, And it's not mandatory that everyone did exactly the same thing. Got it. Mm-hmm. And when you're thinking about COVID patients in an emergency room versus cancer patients, do COVID patients take precedence over cancer patients just because of like the urgency of their needs in the moment? Well, I think that again has to be individualized. If a if a patient uh, with COVID needed to be hospitalized, you need to find a bed. If a patient with early stage colon cancer is scheduled for surgery three weeks from now, could it be put off for four weeks? You know, so I do think that there needs to be some discussion about what can be postponed, who needs the hospital bed now, who doesn't. And one interesting thing we did, because I was still in clinical practice for the first year of the COVID pandemic, we created our own urgent care center within our clinic um, so that we did not have to have cancer patients 
who might have a neutropenic fever or another complication go to the ER so that they would not, you know, add to the ER space. And also, most importantly, we were protecting them so they didn't have to go uh, and get worked up uh, in a setting where there was a lot of COVID that they would be exposed to. Hmm. So there are ways, you know, to adapt. And actually, it proved to be so successful and so appreciated both by patients as well as us who are their, their treating clinicians to not make patients go to the ER uh, when they need to be seen, you know, after hours or late at night, that we kept it. Mm, yeah, well, that's interesting. Can you say a bit more about that? I mean, what did that look like um, in practice and how did you have the staff to maintain that access? In creating our own clinic-based urgent care, we use the facilities of our infusion room, which really were not heavily used after hours, uh, if at all. And then we used our advanced practice providers, our nurse practitioners and um, our uh, physician assistants, and uh, created you know, a, a coverage schedule we had to add on some providers to make sure we had coverage. Mm-hmm. And then they were the primary uh, providers who were doing the workup um, of these issues. So it was our own staff um, who uh, know cancer patients, know the drugs that we're treating them with, who were doing uh, the workup. And for the most part, we could keep the majority of our patients out of the emergency room you had mentioned drug therapy being a potential alternative to some more, you know, immediate treatment or, you know, I think you mentioned endocrine therapy. What about access to these medications in times of crises cuz if i remember correctly reading that that's been an issue with um the with the war on ukraine, right? That's um it's been difficult to increasingly difficult to access some of these medicines and a lot of requests coming to ASCO and and other organizations is for for help accessing them, right? Right. So the war in Ukraine is a a perfect example of uh, an inability for major hospitals and clinics to be able to operate for supply lines being broken down. So we couldn't deliver drugs, um, safety of the clinicians, of the patients in some regions of the country so that even if the building was still standing and even if you had the drug, you didn't want to be in that area. Um, And uh, it very quickly became apparent that um, cancer patients, uh, the Ukrainian population in general, were moving westward in the country where it was safer. Um, And while there was a lot that we worked on early on about all of the Ukrainian refugees that were ending up in the bordering countries, such as Romania and Poland. Um, It turned out when we actually started getting solid data on where the cancer patients were moving, a lot of them weren't leaving the country, Um, but they were internally displaced. And so for example, Lviv, uh, a, a city that's on the Polish border, was a place that that whole region was a place that a lot of cancer patients ended up. Now, the cancer center there got a certain supply of different chemo agents and different biologic therapies and different endocrine agents that was set to basically cover 
their, you know, their usual patient load. And all of a sudden, they have this influx, a lot more cancer patients. They did everything they could to accommodate them. But of course, they ran out of drug because it was based on what would have happened in a time of peace. So a lot of work on getting drugs across the border, donations um, to those areas that had the influx. And then in some of the other areas, um, just trying to safely get supplies um, to some of the more at-risk areas where uh, there was actual combat and conflict going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So drugs were affected just like everything else in the supply chain, it seems. Is there a way to help prevent that, you know, for in the future? I know it's an unpredictable situation and it evolves, you know, week to week, but what would be an example of a way to help maintain that flow of, of medications? Well, uh, ASCO immediately partnered with the uh, European Cancer Organization because we are mostly over here in North America and uh, uh, we wanted to partner with groups that were on the ground in the region. I mean, we do have members uh, throughout Eastern Europe and in Ukraine. Interestingly, um, what we found was that these requests for drugs, for example, were coming from a bunch of different places. And we started seeing that there were some kind of, if you will, fraudulent requests, um, generally for expensive cancer medicines, hmm. um, like the, the immune checkpoint inhibitors. And when we started to delve into it to verify that this was a real request, um, we would be told those drugs aren't even on our our coverage list for the country. We don't use wow. those drugs in this country. Mm-hmm. And so people were trying to exploit the situation. And that met, made us realize quite quickly that we needed to work with the National Cancer Institute and and have good, solid, strong um, you know, contacts that could tell us, is this a real request or not? And what about ongoing shortages aside from some of those fraudulent requests? Yeah. Well, um, you know, keeping track of exactly what was needed and, and how long a supply was left um, was felt to be really critical. The World Health Organization um, has a group that uh, they appointed a special Convoy for Cancer, and uh, worked with us with the European Cancer Organization um, to try to help, you know, keep spreadsheets and validate it and be in communication with all of the cancer centers and did their best you know, to get drug delivered. And we got lots of drug donated. uh, And then we had to work with groups who might not have any association with cancer, but they're experts in, in getting, you know, things transported, getting supplies places and uh, work with them on getting the drugs there. So it needed to be a partnership and it needed to be done officially so that one main group was collecting the data, had control over the data, mm-hmm. and that we weren't responding to one-off requests from all around the country. Mm-hmm. Can you say a bit about, for example, maintaining you know, research and clinical trials during these crises? Is that lower on the list than m- more emergency care? Um, and 
what are maybe the most effective approaches that you've seen in getting those back up and running after something like Hurricane Ian? Yeah, and that's a great question. I think um, opening new trials or enrolling new patients on a clinical trial is something that we need to seriously look at in a time of crisis, a natural disaster, et cetera. But the other piece, which is continuing the treatment of patients who have already enrolled, is absolutely critical. I mean, this is cancer treatment. And so finding ways to uh, have alternative sites for patients to be treated at, ways of if they're um, on an experimental drug or a drug provided by the trial, of getting that drug to the patient. The sponsors of the trials, when they're um, industry-sponsored trials, I know, and again, I'm back to Ukraine, but they jumped right in, knew who was on treatment where in Ukraine, followed where they were found other sites conducting the same trial if the patient wanted to make their way to that site and so bent over backwards. So I think, you know, to go back to your question, opening new trials, um, enrolling new patients who could get standard of care treatment that would be much easier to access, that probably needs to be put on pause um, while we're just focusing as hard as we can on getting treatment to patients. Um, We did shut down at at my facility again during that first year of the COVID pandemic. We shut down, for example, opening new trials, uh, especially um, phase one trials where you were trying to define dose or phase three trials um, where you're comparing to a standard of care. And so the patient could get the standard of care. We did preferentially allow phase two trials to be open because many times these are trials of drugs where patients might have had all of the standard treatments and they're looking for a next line treatment. So we allowed most of those to continue. But we were able to, you know, open clinical trials back up again, particularly once we understood what this virus was and did. And of course, a year later when we started to have the vaccines available um, and we felt more comfortable with who we were bringing into the building, uh, et cetera. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And what about, I mean, how much of this and cancer care delivery is specific to, you know, that direct access for a patient to be able to come into a facility and receive treatment, just having a facility open, having the treatment there. And how much of this is, you know, social determinants of health and ensuring that patients have access to transportation to a facility or, you know, being able to relocate or, or travel to another state, for example, um, you know, has that come up more and more? Yeah. You know, inequities that exist in access to care just get exacerbated in times of crisis. Um, If you think about a natural disaster, a hurricane, Hurricane Maria, for example, in 2017, you know, those with the means were able to get out or move to a different Mm -hmm. location many times. Um, You think about COVID-19 and the same thing. Um, You know, we just 
exacerbated the gaps in in care and access to care. Those who had to travel long distances, those you know who um, <clears throat> had other barriers to receiving care. You put COVID nineteen in the middle of it, and it just makes the gap even bigger. So we've got to pay particular attention to this um, as well. Mm-hmm. Has ASCO partnered more with community-based organizations to address some of those social barriers? Can you talk about you know, effective approaches for others or healthcare stakeholders to um, help with those uh, specific factors? Well, we've... Um we've partnered with the American Cancer Society in getting information out. I'm going back to Ukraine now, but we immediately partnered in creating 24-7 hotlines where our members volunteered uh, to help the already existing 24-7 ACS hotline so that any calls coming in related to how do you care for cancer patients that might have ended up in a primary care office in Poland you know, or Romania, um, we had calls coming in like, this patient just got radiation last week. Are they still radioactive? What do we do? So we worked on creating um, basically um, a, a hotline, uh, an emergency kind of crisis network where you could call in. We created phone numbers uh, in each country, so it was all toll free, or you could chat, or you could do it by email, and then actually get oncologists uh, uh, to reply. We have talked about now that we've kind of built this crisis response network in partnership with the ACS, we've talked about using it for natural disasters as well, for example, where it's just, it's an open line, it's monitored, you can access it a couple different ways and monitored by the great, you know, American Cancer Society um, triage group. And then you have immediate access as needed to oncologists to try to help sort out what's needed, what the situation is. So we, we are planning on continuing that and augmenting it. Uh, we built it for Ukraine, but we realize it will fit perfectly when we have natural disasters, hurricanes, et cetera, in our own country, and we need to act immediately. Are there other elements of this that we haven't talked about? Well, I think um, we haven't talked about the the virtual visits and virtual care um, that we learned how to do so well with COVID-19. Um, and how we need to be able to keep that option open um, through telemedicine. You know, in a time of a natural disaster, um, sometimes you, you need to go out of state, and we've got issues sometimes allowing physicians to work in other states where they might not be licensed. We had to do that with telemedicine if right. if you have a patient in another state the definition of where you're where you're practicing medicine is where the physician or the provider is so mm-hmm. um you know we had to get waivers i also think we need to better partner in that kind of a setting with the local smaller clinics like patients can go in and get blood draws at locally at non cancer centers even if needed mm. That's great. I appreciated your point about, you know, more collaboration with local clinics and telehealth. Well, my last question is, you know, looking back over the past couple of years since COVID first 
hit. Um, in the U.S. alone, thousands of cancer surgeries were delayed, and you know, millions and millions of cancer screenings uh, didn't happen. I'm just wondering what your take is, looking back on the way that the U.S. chose to triage and to handle COVID-19 and cancer care. I think it was appropriate that at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were doing everything we could to keep people away from medical facilities to protect them from the virus, that we said routine screening in a healthy person can be delayed. Mm -hmm. And I do think that was appropriate. Um, I'm not sure we did as well with the messaging that if you have a finding, a problem, a lump, something, get it checked out. But that's not screening, that's diagnostic workup, right? So I'm, I think in the future, we could do better with that distinction of who, you know, were, we should still come in, even though we're saying routine screening shouldn't be done. I think when we decided it was safe to resume screening again, and we were starting to get people back in for their mammograms, for their colonoscopies, for their cervical cancer screening, People didn't jump right away. I think there was still a population that was very concerned, um, maybe not inappropriately, uh, at coming into a medical facility. I think it's going to it's going to be years before we understand what really happened with COVID in terms of delayed diagnosis and uh, the impact on um, survival and deaths. Um, clearly, a lot of mammograms were missed. A lot of colonoscopies were missed. A lot of pelvic exams were missed. My question, and I, I keep trying to look for data on this, is how many of those have now been made up, right? It was the people who, you know, had a delayed diagnosis and we did find a cancer on their next screening, or they didn't even find it on screening. They got a mass that they came in for, mm. and that's how it was found. It's going to be years before we see the impact of that on cancer deaths. Um, I know it had an impact. And the same thing is happening in Ukraine right now. Nobody's recommending routine cancer screening. And we're approaching a year uh, of war there. So, you know, th there will be repercussions uh, due to the war right now. And it's not inappropriate that there are much bigger issues on the minds of our Ukrainian friends and colleagues, uh, staying alive, um, you yeah. know, keeping their families safe, mm -hmm. that thinking about going in for cancer screening is not at the top of the list. And right now, for many, probably shouldn't be. Thank you so much for being on Prognosis today and for sharing all these insights. Yeah, thanks for this great discussion. That was Julie Graylow and Anastasia Gledkovskia. Next up, we're going to finally talk about this year's Fierce 15 honorees. But before we get to that, I have some announcements. Last week, we hosted another Fierce JPM Week. It was an exciting gathering of some of the greatest minds in pharma and healthcare. But don't worry if you missed it. You can still catch the virtual programming. It's happening right now through January 19th. Go to FierceJPMWeek.com. And if you're still unable to make it, we do have a few special episodes coming up that will highlight a little bit of the JPM Week programming. Wednesday's episode of Podnosis will be a JPM Week special, and we also have a JPM special episode of The Top Line. That's our sister podcast, produced by our Fierce Life Sciences team. 
The special will be the Friday, January 20th episode. So if you haven't yet listened to The Top Line, now would be a good time to add it to your queue. Search for The Top Line. You can find links to JPM Week, The Top Line, and Fierce 15 in our show notes at FierceHealthcare.com. Look for podcasts. Now on to our next segment. Every year, we get to honor 15 companies who are the fiercest in the healthcare industry. We look for companies that are trying to change the world by changing the industry. In the past, it's been startups taking on mental health care delivery or companies helping primary care providers take their operations online. Sometimes it's new platforms that reach more populations and address the social determinants of health or an e-commerce service and support network for caregivers. We've asked you to submit your nominations, and after reviewing all the nominees, we finally narrowed it down to just 15 honorees. It was really hard, but this year, the honorees tackle some of the healthcare industry's largest problems. That includes prior authorization, billing, and price transparency. The businesses selected include startups seeking to upend traditional systems of care and companies seeking to offer patient-centered care for queer and trans communities. Here to give us the rundown is reporter Robert King and editor-in-chief Ayla Ellison. Hi, Robert. I'm looking forward to discussing this year's Fierce 15 with you today. It's an absolutely wonderful special report. I thought a good place to start would be to talk about the history of the Fierce 15 special report. Can you tell us a little bit about how the honorees are typically chosen and and what the criteria is? The Fierce 15 is a collection of 15 companies. And we traditionally try to get some companies that are uh, you know, larger and smaller, but we look for companies that are looking to kind of break through the status quo. Uh, we're not looking at, you know, kind of large established companies uh, necessarily, but companies that are really uh, driving disruption, uh, driving changes within the healthcare space. So this is the fifth annual report. And uh, basically the entire Fierce Healthcare team takes uh, some of these companies and we do profiles on all of them, uh, kind of delving into their history, their goals uh, for the coming year, and, uh, you know, kind of how they're trying to kind of alter this, you know, massive healthcare landscape that we cover. And all of these companies across across the healthcare industry are, like you said, they're driving innovation. They're really seen as disruptors. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the specific honorees that are on this year's list. Um, the one that stuck out to me, I believe you wrote the profile for, was MetaRive. And can you tell us a little bit more about that company and what you learned um, in the process of writing that profile? Sure. MetaRive is a New York-based uh, home health company. And home health has exploded in uh, popularity and use since the COVID-19 pandemic. And MetaRive is doing something a little bit different in that they have a uh, they kind of have a platform that they use to essentially offer up uh you know rely on emergency medical services staff uh to kind of help fill the major staffing crunch that we have right now going on in the healthcare industry. So the platform that MediRive created connects health plans and providers to patients via these field providers, which, 
you know, can run from run the gamut from paramedics to registered nurses and also medical assistants. So some of its customer base includes managed care plans, Medicare Advantage plans, and also uh, provider accountable care organizations. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, home health care, virtual care has really exploded in popularity. So um, what you're describing is that the company is really seeking to sort of close the gap in the home health care market. Yeah, they're trying to essentially create a an effective and, and, and cost effective workforce that's going to work, uh, you know, for these, uh, you know, for this this boom in home health services. One of the interesting questions that reporters asked these executives this year was to go into detail to talk about some of some of their greatest failures. And so can you tell us a little bit, um, Robert, about um, the biggest failure that MetaRive CEO Dan Trigib shared with you? Yeah. So Dan uh, kind of shared with me that he's done a lot of startups. Uh, this is not his first startup. He came uh, he previously worked with Uber, previously worked with Lyft in their healthcare, uh, in their healthcare arms, essentially. And what he said that was one of his kind of biggest takeaways from his previous work in startup is making sure that he finds the right people. And he said specifically, you know, he thought that when he first started out, he could do it all on his own. And, you know, once you hit healthcare, uh, you know, you realize that it's definitely a lot more complicated and a lot harder than you thought that it would be. So you need to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you and bring other skill sets. And I think it's uh, some humility, I believe, is, is you know, one of the things that he didn't, having humility is, I think, one of the things that he didn't really, you know, recognize that he needed early on. And I think that's something, you know, we're hearing from from healthcare executives, especially those from from startups when they're getting into the healthcare industry. I I it seems like a lot of them are, you know, they share they just really don't understand how complex the industry is until they're in it and trying to do business in healthcare. It's interesting to hear from these executives and even though their companies um do do very different things within the healthcare space. Um, they've had similar experiences in terms of trying to find the right teams and recruit talent. Um, when when the fierce fifteen honorees were were chosen and the executive executives were interviewed, another question that they were asked was just to give some predictions for twenty twenty three. And Robert, can you talk a little bit about what were some of the trends that the honorees identified and what we should watch out for this year? Yeah, this was a, a pretty interesting question to me because these are people that are really on the cutting edge of kind of health IT and uh, you know healthcare transformation. So I thought that there one of the themes that I saw as I looked through some of the predi- predictions is the continued consumerization of healthcare, and what that means is that health systems and insurers are going to need to figure out the best way to attract and retain patients as you know uh as as patients start to become you know much more tech savvy and a lot of these more all these online tools start to become kind of uh more normalized i suppose so uh Derek Street of the, of Dexcar one of the uh, Dexcare sorry one of the other uh CEOs that we interviewed said that he's going to believes that more health systems are going to use tools like AI 
and pre predictive modeling to kind of help best fit the patient experience. So I, I, I think that using these new technologies and these new tools is going to be uh, a pretty big uh, trend uh, for a lot of these companies. And also uh, looking to see what looking for uh, looking into kind of regulations and everything and rules that are going to be coming out in the next year or two. Uh, this is kind of my uh, bailiwick, I suppose, is what I report on uh, in uh, in my normal course course of the day for Fierce Healthcare. Uh, some of the rules that are being implemented, continue to be implemented, are uh, the No Surprises Act uh, and price transparency rules. So those are going to be how those are implemented and how those are you know, how providers and payers respond to those regulations is another thing that, you know, they're looking out for. So those are two of the the common trends that I saw uh, for 2023. As you mentioned, really at the end of the day in healthcare, what's going to determine how successful some of these, you know, new types of um, care or tools are is really going to be, um, how they're paid for, what they're reimbursed at, and uh, federal and state regulations. So a lot of the barriers um, that were once put up for uh, or in place for telehealth and, and some things that are, are very commonplace today in healthcare, um, there were major barriers to those, uh, major reimbursement barriers and also barriers um, due to variation in state laws. So we've seen some of those barriers come down um, during the, the public health emergency, uh, but will be really interesting, especially this year, um, continuing to look at how uh, companies are continuing to drive innovation in the space and then how new um, rules that are being rolled out this year will impact um, the success or um, how, how widespread some of these new care models and tools are used. Um, I know that there were several honorees or companies on the list, um, the Fierce 15 list this year, that are seeking to make it easier for patients to access care. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Now, we've talked a little bit about the technology aspect, but I'd love to hear from you, Robert, a little bit more about how these some of these startups are um, implementing innovations to really make it easier for patients to access care. Yeah, great. Uh, and one of those startups that I that really kind of caught my eye was uh, Folks Health. That's F O L X. Uh, so it's Folks, but it's a different spelling. Um, but the startup is aimed to kind of offer patient centered care for queer and trans communities, uh, which you know traditionally have uh, been an area where there's been some equity gaps. Another another interesting tidbit uh, that I saw was uh, in Ribbon Health, one of the other companies that was honored, where they're really trying to book healthcare with one click, uh, whether that's through a mouse or through on your phone. Um, you know, the, the CEO, Nate Maslick, said that he wants to create kind of an online booking platform for healthcare that would be similar to the system that we use, like Open Table. For restaurants, uh, you know, where, where it's incredibly easy to uh, try and book a reservation for a uh, table at a restaurant, you can also, you know, book uh, healthcare. So those are some of the more interesting kind of ideas and approaches that I saw to, uh, you know, kind of help to expand access, I think, uh, to care among the honorees. 
really at the end of the day, it's all about how can healthcare catch up with some of these other industries in terms of ease of access and scheduling um, and the experience that consumers have, um, you know, when they do business outside of the healthcare industry. So booking care with one click, um, that sounds amazing uh, to me personally. And I, and I think for anyone who's dealt with, um, you know, a traditional health system, hospital, primary care provider, uh, that is very far from the experience that, that, that they've had. So um, it'll be so interesting to continue to track the progress of companies like Ribbon Health to see um, what type of progress, uh, what kind of progress they make uh, moving forward this year and um, in the future as well. So um, thanks so much, Robert, for, for diving into a couple of examples there. Um, one last thing I wanted to dive into with you a little bit, Robert, is just if there were any other companies that caught your eye among the 15 honorees this year. I know we talked about a few specifically, but any others that you wanted to discuss today? Sure. So uh, one of the companies I like to mention is uh, HealthJoy, which actually has been around uh, a lot longer than some of the other companies. Some companies have been formed as early as I think September 2020, which was uh, when Medarive uh, was founded. But Health uh, HealthJoy was founded originally in 2014, and it has more than 400 employees. And it's trying to address uh, literally what you were just talking about, which is the large confusion, uh, you know, surrounding you know, the, the healthcare uh, industry and the healthcare, healthcare world. Uh, it has a navigation platform that seeks to kind of connect employees with benefits and give live support in a suite of virtual care options for employees to, you know, kind of help them to get more engaged with their healthcare. And that's a pretty huge, you know, thing that, you know, companies are definitely have always been trying to kind of look into. And this is one that's, you know, utilizing technology to help do that. You know, you know we see the proliferation of wellness programs by employers and employer employers that are always trying to find ways to cut down on healthcare costs that seem to continue to go up every single year. So uh, HealthJoy was kind of interesting. They were a little bit different from some of the others that we chose uh, since they're you know, and they give a good, you know, they, they've been around uh, a lot longer and everything. So I thought that that was an interesting uh, company that caught my eye. Yeah. And that's interesting too, that you mentioned that, um, you know, some of the the companies, uh, the honorees this year are um, relatively new. They're, they're in startup mode and others are more established. And so um, really it is a, a wonderful mix of, of honorees this year. And, um, the, you know, to learn more about all of these, the Fierce 15 report is now available on fiercehealthcare.com. But I wanted to just really thank you so much, uh, Robert, for diving into the details and joining me today. And, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for having me. That was Robert King and Ayla Ellison. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week is our special JPM episode, so tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. Thank you.